of um, Daniel Espy's MD-PhD. He's an associate professor, SciLife fellow uh, at the Department of Medical Cell Biology and Department of Medical Sciences, Uppsala University, SciLife Lab, Sweden, joining us. Um, and he's going to be discussing classifying hypoglycemic events with machine learning algorithms. Um, very interested. I actually got um, a few, um, uh, some feedback from people at um, Dexcom, as well as Tidepool, who uh, may be joining us, um, because this is, of course, of interest to them. And um, a short bio is uh, that Daniel Espy's MD-PhD completed his PhD at Uppsala University in 2016 and became an associate professor in medical cell biology in 2019. In parallel with his translational research path, he's worked actively as a clinical physician and became a specialist in internal medicine in 2019 and a senior consultant in 2020. In 2021, he became a SciLife Fellow at Uppsala University and the PI of a translational research group focused on identifying novel therapies for type 1 diabetes in combination with developing clinically applicable imaging techniques for assessing beta cell mass and immune infiltration of the human pancreas. In addition, SBC is the co-founder of 1-2 Analytics, a Swedish med tech company that develops AI solutions to automate the analysis of CGM data in order to turn the data into knowledge. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really excited to hear more about this talk. I didn't um, know if you wanted to just do a quick sort of high-level, um, uh, you know, introduction about what is SciLife Lab? Yeah, so uh, thank you very much for having me on the Sugar Science. I'm a big fan of the platform and the community. Uh, and uh, SciLife Lab is a, a national effort in Sweden in order to uh, uh, boost the life science community. So it's both a core um, facility with um, highly specialized labs for the life sciences. And it's also sort of a um, community and it also hosts different programs such as the SciLife Fellows program, which I'm a part of, which is, I guess you could translate it to a tenure track is what you would call it in the US. So, so it's- um, uh, is, is that track open to international um scientists or is it strictly for the you know the the area of sweden and surrounding countries um no so so the the fellows program and and the programs that scilife have is uh, highly international so it's open to anyone who is interested in pursuing a career in in the life science uh, in sweden of course you have to be located in sweden um which i mean it's up to you to decide if that's a good or bad thing but for me it's a really good thing and then um they have different focus areas. So within like life sciences or SciLife, there's a lot of things. So there's also programs more directed to applications of AI in life science and um, uh, and big data. And then there's also, of course, for more clinically related research or uh, fundamental research. So, so there's like the whole array of, of life sciences. And, yeah, it, and, sounds, um, it sounds really cool. I would encourage people to check it out. Yeah. And they usually post their positions also in Nature and and big journals like that. So it's uh, and they have a great web page if you want to learn more. So all right, sounds good. Check it out. Um, and okay, so let's jump to you know this fascinating paper that just um, you know made its debut. Um, do you want to walk us through it? Yeah. So I was thinking we'll start on something more uh, high level. I don't know if uh, let's see if we get the presentation running. So and it also as mentioned in my bio as a disclosure, I'm also the founder of a Swedish medtech company with interest in this area. Uh, but 
as you all may know, hypoglycemia is quite a common phenomenon in, um, uh, for patients living with type 1 diabetes or for people living with type 1 diabetes. Um, as for anything in science, there's sometimes a bit of a controversy. And uh, as any definition, there's also a controversy for the definition of hypoglycemia, which used to be at least in, in Europe defined as levels below 3.5 or 63 milligrams per deciliter. But with the introduction of CGM, that sort of changed. But the old definition, to some extent, lives on. But it, that was more based on the physiological response to hypoglycemia, whereas more current guidelines are adapted to how we would aggregate continuous glucose data. Regardless of what you call it, hypoglycemia can give rise to a, a bunch of symptoms, most of them unpleasant. And uh, if not resolved, hypoglycemia can also actually be life-threatening. And there's also reports saying that around 6 to 10% of all deaths among people living with type 1 diabetes can be attributed to hypoglycemia. So, so it's a matter of importance. And related to it, there's a lot of things to talk about, which is not covered by this paper. But for instance, fear of hypoglycemia is a big challenge. Hypoglycemia and awareness is another challenge. And a lot of that would relate to other topics that have been covered on the sugar science, such as islet transplantation and replacement of beta cells and so on. And this is a figure that has sort of <laughs> overlived. I guess it was published probably in the 90s or something by Nova Nordisk, but it's still in most clinics, at least in Sweden. And you can see that the, the writing is in Swedish, but I guess you can sort of pick up on the symptoms anyhow that you could get tired and hungry. Hunger is actually the same word in Swedish as in English. And a lot of other symptoms. And in order to resolve it, of course, you need carbohydrates or sugar. Um, and just to sort of closing up on the topic of uh, what we're about to talk to and uh, machine learning and AI and diabetes, a lot of that is uh, related to the large explosion of glucose data that was introduced by continuous glucose monitoring. And uh, I just wanted to paint the picture that it was not that long ago when a big challenge in the management of diabetes was basically the lack of glucose data because you were depending on self-monitoring of capillary blood glucose measurements. And many clinical visits would be focused on how often do you measure glucose? And if you don't measure it enough, we cannot give you any advice, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, when measuring it by capillary blood test, then you could not measure it while sleeping unless someone else did it for you and data during exercise, et cetera, were quite sparse. So it was basically less than 10 years ago, that was the challenge. Like we did not have enough data to draw conclusions. And looking back, it's quite puzzling that we even used insulin pumps before we had continuous glucose data. So we were sort of going out into the dark with a pump, but that, that's quite recent. But now we have tons of data and we have so much data that we're not even looking at the numerical data anymore. So in the past, we would look at single measurements of glucose and try to draw conclusions. And of course, continuous glucose measurements also ends up as time series of glucose data. But instead of reviewing the exact figure, which of course you would do in real time, but when looking back in retrospect, you would more likely be reviewing the daily curves of glucose data. And perhaps even more likely is that you would review aggregated data, such as time spent in different intervals or the ambulatory glucose profile. And that has also some implications for how we review hypoglycemia because this is like the traditional ambulatory glucose profile, 
many of you would be familiar with. And in that, we depict hypoglycemia as the time spent below range, which is, of course, true because the new definition would say that is equal to hypoglycemia, but that's the total amount of time spent below range. So it doesn't say how many events were there and what was the individual pattern of hypoglycemia. So if you would only review that, you can say, okay, you're above the target, which is 4% or less, but I cannot tell you whether or not that occurred during night or if it's frequent episodes or whatever. So when looking at the daily curves, of course, you can identify the single events, which can have some implications on how to review the hypoglycemia later on. And then just to give a glance of some of the data we have been working on since we published this paper um, by Hendrik Hill, a pediatrician, and this is some real-life data from Uppsala from a pediatric cohort of in total 214 individuals. Just wanted to highlight that this is data from around 170 days of CGM readings. And in neither of the groups that we divided based on A1C, which is not of importance for this point, is that most of them have a quite high time below range, meaning that hypoglycemia, even with that metric, is quite common. But if you instead compute it as single events, which is depicted in the figures, you can see that on average, it's around 1.5 hypoglycemic events per day. But when looking in this group with the lowest A1C, you can see that the range is from around 0.2 up to almost five hypoglycemic events per day on average during a 170 day time period. So hypoglycemia is for sure a very common phenomena in diabetes, which sometimes leads to um, alarming effects. It also can lead to excursions into highs that can be, you know, very stubborn to correct. Yes. And so um, really, you I, know, I, the control I, is, is, is kind of on both ends driven by lows. Yes. So, so I, I'm very interested in that phenomena, which I tried to call the uh, Hill phenomena, because that's the last name of Hendrik, one of my PhD students, the high-low phenomena, but it's, it, it's actually the low-high phenomena. So, I've been uh, trying to get him to change his last name, but uh, that's an ongoing discussion. But but that's very true. So if you have had, uh, especially if you had a severe hypoglycemic events, there's a lot of publications underbuilding that that would lead, in, in fact, to a uh, overall increase in glycemia due to safety behaviors and so on, which is highly natural that if you have had a severe hypoglycemic event, you want to avoid that going forward. So you would rather have a slightly higher hypoglycemia. And, and it's also quite common to see that uh, an overcorrection of hypoglycemia, meaning that you have hypers that were caused by um, the previous hypoglycemia. So if you can correct or if you can adjust the amount or the frequency of hypoglycemia, you can most likely also improve your overall metabolic um, uh, targets. Okay, so closing in on what we were supposed to talk about, the classification of hypoglycemic events. And if we can use machine learning to do so, and if that would be of any importance. Uh, so just as a sort of general depiction of how we went about this, is that we were interested in how we could make better use of all the CGM data that we have, and especially these hypoglycemic events, which as you pointed out, I also, also think is very important for getting a better overall glycemic control or glycemic optimization. So what we did is that we collected data from around from 449 patients. Uh, it was also um, extended time periods of CGM readings. So 
on average around 150 days. Uh, in total, there were more than 40,000 hypoglycemic events. So from that uh, amount of data, we randomly selected around 5,000 events, which we then uh, tried to manually interpret in order to find the most likely underlying root cause. That may sound straightforward, but if you have worked with CGM data, you know that in contrast to others, aspects of medicine such as EKG or other things, there are no strict criteria for how to determine root causes or glucose excursions. We're mainly focused on aggregating data into different intervals, finding measurements of variability, et cetera, but not so much focused on actual underlying root causes for excursions. So based on what we could learn from the CGM readings, meaning basically glucose, time of hour, and in some cases, insulin registrations and registrations of carbohydrates, we thought that what we can sort of justify is we can call it that the root cause were either due to an excessive basal insulin, uh, could be either by pump infusion or long-acting insulin or MDI, or it could be an overestimated bolus at a meal, or it could be a overcorrection of hyperglycemia. So those three causes is something we could later on validate with that data that we had at hand. But of course, there could be a number of contributors for hypoglycemia and also perhaps other causes that would be a direct effect towards hypoglycemia. But that was not something we could validate in the data. So it was nothing. Uh, what we did next when we had the data, which was the most time consuming part, was to evaluate different types of machine learning models in order to find the one with the best performance for these type of time series data, which we called the HypoCNN model. We'll go into details for that. And the intention was to be able to, by just the click of a button, or more likely several buttons, uh, to, to, to analyze all of the events so that we could learn what was the driving factors behind hypoglycemia for uh, each individual. Uh, in the cohort that we used, there were both adult and pediatric patients. There were both patients using insulin pump and MDI. There was a quite big uh, range of disease duration. So we had some patients that were fairly new onset, or at least within the first years of disease. And there were also patients that had a very long disease duration. And there was a mix of age and gender in the group. And just to clarify that for this approach, we used a strict supervised learning, meaning that all of the data was manually labeled by clinicians. Uh, we could have used a mix of models, or we could use unsupervised models, or you could ask ChatGPT to classify events, probably, but that's not how we went about it. How laborious was that for clinicians to, you know, tag every piece of data like that? Uh, quite time-consuming, I would say. So mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's a, I think, a limitation for like many applications. Of course, you can do similar things for a lot of glucose excursions. But, but I would say that the time you need to spend on analyzing the glucose data uh, and the lack of a sort of strict um, definition or like a, that, that, that's the main limitation. So, standardized, something standardized. Yeah. So I would say for this, uh, apart from the publication process, for, the, for, for this uh, project, I, I say we spend perhaps... 75% of the time was spent on labeling of data and 75% or 25% on, on like optimizing models, et cetera. So uh, labeling data is very time consuming. Yeah. Which is true also for radiology or any application of AI yeah. in, in life science. We've heard that many times. So yeah, yeah. That's, 
that's a that's another sticky point, but it's one yeah. that probably will resolve as time goes by. Yes, probably. Um, so this is just an example of how the manual labeling, what it looked like. So we had a, a time series that were centered around the hypoglycemic event per se. So they were six hours in advance of the event and six hours following it. So it was a 12 hour time series in total. In this material, we defined hypoglycemia as below 3.5 or 63 milligrams per deciliters, uh, partly because of the uh, more traditional old view of hypoglycemia that we have adopted, but also due to that it was a mixture of different types of sensor with different types of accuracy and so on. And we were more interested in making sure that the hypoglycemic events that we do label are in fact uh, what you would call hypoglycemia. But of course, this could be um, adopted to other cutoff levels, such as 3.9 or 70 milligrams per deciliter as well. In the original data set that we used uh, of roughly 5,000 events, it was split into a training set and a validation set. And the validation set was never used for a training of the algorithm, and it was from separate patients. So it was not just that it was not an overlap of events, but there was also a restriction of patients in the two cohorts. And then we had a, another data set that was generated from 22 patients, which had also registered insulin and carbohydrates. And that was used as purely a validation data set that was never used for training. Uh, and in addition to the two clinical evaluators that did most of the labeling, we had a clinical board of five separate clinical experts who did individual interpretations of a, a smaller number of events. And then we, at sort of a majority vote for each event so that we would have a ground truth or what you would call like an expert opinion. This is how clinicians would have reviewed hypoglycemic events given that they had access to insulin and carbohydrate data and they had to agree upon one answer that there could only be one root cause for each event. And this is how it would look like uh, in the macro that we used. We didn't use these colors, but uh, for presentation purposes, I changed the colors. So the different types of hypoglycemia would have different patterns, and that's how we identify them. Um, so just to give an idea about how that could look like, and this is what we would call excessive basal insulin pressure, et cetera. And this is what we would call overcorrection of hyperglycemia. And so they had some different patterns. And from that data, we then tested different applicable models. Some, most of them were based on neural networks. Uh, we also had like simple models like logistic regression just to test as, as a baseline. And I guess this what, there were two things that surprised me a lot in this paper. And this was one of them, that even for these very simple models, you could get a fairly decent um, area under the curve score, uh, but it was, to a large extent due to the overfitting of basal pressure, because what we learned was that excessive basal insulin pressure was the most common cause of hypoglycemia in this data set. So by overfitting that, you would get a fairly high uh, overall score. Uh, whereas the model that we had custom built for this purpose, uh, which we called HypoCNN, uh, had the best overall score for average overall, but also for each specific class. So that's the one we used for further, uh, further elaborations. And we tested for that model the importance of data set size 
as we talked about, the manual labeling is quite uh, burdensome and takes a lot of time. So we wanted to make sure that the amount of data that we had was actually enough to, to train this model and to, to validate it. And um, as you can see, size does matter. But when you have labeled around 4,000 events, you sort of reach a plateau. So we could continue to increase the training data, but it would probably not have a great impact on the performance. Then of course, there could be other ways to improve the performance, but by, by just including or increasing training data that would probably not have a great effect. Uh, the cutoff. other thing that- Oh, sorry. Yeah. So the cutoff for the training data was uh, the, the you know minimal training data cutoff was like 4,000. Yeah. Uh, so like at 3,000, the, the, the axis is uh, quietly, um, not very representative. So when moving from 3000 event, there's not that much of an improvement really, right. but that's what we wanted to find. Like, okay, if we would move further from this point, it would probably slowly reach 0 0.925, but it would probably not go above it with it with the setup that we used. You found the sweet spot. It's good. Yes. At least that's what we think. And then the other thing that surprised me in this paper, uh, which could have like perhaps we could have anticipated in advance, but the, the, the beauty actually of AI or machine learning is that we can, I mean, we can use lots of data. We can include other things than just glucose levels, of course. We can ascribe it different values to each event, uh, but by using like additional descriptive clinical data that we usually consider to be of importance, such as disease duration, perhaps BMI, the treatment modality, et cetera. In this setup, that had little or no importance for the performance of this model. And of course, these are only the basic descriptive data and they are not like a link to each event. It's not continuous data. It's not an activity tracker, et cetera. So I'm, I'm certain that there are things you could add that would improve the performance, but the things that we would traditionally consider uh, did not impact the performance. And um, however, by adding the time of the day, at a slight uh, increase in the performance. Uh, and that's something I think as a clinician, you would describe quite a lot of importance. You would review and try to depict, okay, it's during the night time, perhaps you were doing this and that, and you're trying to build like a persona. What did this person actually do at that given time point? And if you see something happening at noon, you would say, okay, it's, it's a lunch perhaps. So, so I was sort of expecting that that would have a greater impact also for for the machine learning model, but it, it was a quite slight improvement. However, if we combine the features that actually had slight improvements, such as restricting the time series, so masking them after the event, and including time of day, and also adding class weights, so a, a penalty function for the class since they were unevenly distributed, that slightly improved the model's performance. Uh, so we incorporated those additions in the model that we finally used. And we also wanted to sort of understand what is it in the glucose time series that the model actually uses in order to, to define the root cause. And this is a bit of a busy slide, but it's, it's basically the same uh, time series in three different columns. And for each of the classes, you have a visualization of the attribution vectors. So red dots means that it describes a positive weight for that specific class, whereas a blue dot means it's a negative effect for that class. And the size of the dot reflects the magnitude. And then 
in the far right column, you can see the probability it ascribes to each class and it's in the same order as they are presented. So basically for each event, the algorithm doesn't just give you an answer saying, okay, it's this or that. So it, it describes a probability score for each of the three different classes and then presents the one with the highest probability. And in this picture, uh, the green frame is to depict that this is sort of the correct answer. This is what clinicians answered. Whereas in the cases that the algorithm didn't give the same answer that's uh, highlighted by a red frame. So then you can see, for instance, in this case where you have the correct answer is basal pressure, which also the algorithms says, then you can see that the main effect for how it comes up with that cause is by these red dots that is just prior to the event. So it has this curve and also for some of the other things. So from that, we can sort of start to understand what is it that it's really doing and which data does it need to, to make this interpretation. And for most of the events, the time that is occurring after the hypoglycemia itself is of less importance, which is quite obvious since we're trying to depict what, what actually happened. And so looking at the performance of these models or of, of this model, we, we have a different like, setup. So we had the original train test validation set, which was the 4,000 training events and 1,000 validation events based on the two evaluators that ranked all the scores or, or, or the events. And in that, we get a overall uh, area under the curve value of 92%, which is fairly good. Uh, it's quite similar for all different classes. So you can see in the curve that you have a line for each of the different classes, and then you have the average block curve. For the separate validation set, in which we also had access to uh, insulin and carbohydrate data, we get a quite similar or basically the same overall uh, RCS score. And also when looking at the, uh, comparing the algorithms outcome to the clinical expert board for those events, when they had access to both insulin and carbohydrate data, and when we used the majority score. So it's not for a single clinical expert, but the majority score for the whole panel, then we get a similar area under the curve score as well. So the performance of the model is quite good in sort of replicating what a clinician would say is the most likely underlying root cause. Then we're looking at the accuracy for each of the events, meaning that, okay, if it was to said that it was basal pressure or overcompensation of bolus at a meal, how often is the algorithm actually right? So we use that for the first validation set. And we could see that basal pressure was the easiest cause to predict. So the accuracy was around 80% even without when just computing it for all the data. Whereas overcompensation was the most difficult to define. So what we tested next is if we were to present these data for a clinician or for a patient, we want to apply some type of confidence level. So we know that the overall accuracy is a bit higher. So if we apply an 80% confidence level, then we can see that the average accuracy is 92%. And for basal pressure, it's actually 96%. So that makes it quite accurate. But the problem is that when you apply a confidence interval, you also sort of lose a lot of interpretations. So you can see that in the starting point, we had 597 events. 
but when applying the confidence level, we have 301 events, meaning that it only classifies or gives an answer for half of the events in this set. Uh, so that's something we're working on currently. Uh, but just as a summary, we can say that hypoglycemia is for sure a common phenomenon in type 1 diabetes, and it can potentially be life-threatening. Uh, manual classifications of hypoglycemia or any type of glucose excursion is very time-consuming and that machine learning models can be trained to identify the root causes of hypoglycemia as presented in this paper, but the same methodology can be applied also for other excursions of glucose. And I'm quite certain that shifting focus from aggregated data or percentage in certain intervals will for sure impact the management of diabetes and identifying root causes of hypoglycemia is quite closely linked to how you would uh, manage your insulin therapy. So for instance, if you have a clear domination of excessive basal insulin pressure in, for all your hypoglycemic events, it's quite easy to figure out what you need to do about it. Whereas on the other hand, if most of your hypoglycemia is called, caused by overcompensation of hyperglycemia, then that also gives a very important insight because first problem is why do you even have these hyperglycemic events that you need to correct for? So that's like first order of business. We need to fix that. And then next look at, okay, perhaps you need to consider that insulin sensitivity is higher in the morning or in the evening, or how do you go about this or this and that? So, so I think that trying to understand root causes of why glucose levels goes up and down is more important than aggregating them into different intervals. Aggregated data is important for treatment guidelines and for setting cutoffs, et cetera, but it's not very helpful for individuals. Yeah, no, these are all very, very important points. And, um, you know, as we know, hypoglycemia is very serious um, and, and frightening for the patients. But if, you know, if, if, there's, if there's a way to really kind of smooth out some of the highs and lows, this would be, you know, really helpful to patients. I want to open it up to questions for people. Here we go. Hi, Daniel. If you had one more variable to add to the model, what would you think is most has most impact? Exercise, stress, mood, event um, that impacts blood sugar, like travel, time zone, movement, so forth. This is what is a perfect amount of bolus insulin one day can often prove to be too much or not enough that day, the next day. Thoughts? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so super, super big question and very great question. Um, but, but I would say that adding more continuous variables, such as activity trackers, pulse data, uh, basically anything you can find from a Garmin watch or whatever brand you're using, th that, that would have a great impact because, because I think that's what we are lacking in, in, in uh, at least in the clinical setting today. We're, we're very focused on descriptive parameters or like tabular data. And, and I, I think we need a lot more continuous data. And that's really where the beauty of machine learning and AI comes in that, that we can use all of this data that we could never interpret manually. Yeah, um, I guess it seems to me that these this type of work is very um, timely and you know uh, seems like it would really dovetail into what companies uh, like Dexcom and Tidepool and others are really, you know, pursuing. So, um, you know, I hope hopefully this will, um, you know, be be caught by those groups and and perhaps a collaboration will 
be established because I think what you've done here is is quite interesting and has a lot of room for expansion and you know clinical application. So it's great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again, Daniel. In the interest of time, I'm going to um, close out now, and I'll have to say, as uh, I've tried to in the past, talks I make it. I don't know about that. My, oh, yeah, that was Swedish. I, yeah, <laughs> it took me some you're time. wondering what that is. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're welcome. Okay. Thank you for your mic. Thank you again.